I think th- this is the biggest thing that the last six months has made me realise since uh, we locked down in the UK in March time, March 19th. And since then, I've kind of been on a pursuit to talk to people from all over the world. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way, but it's made me realise that the world is way, way smaller than we thought it was. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because the way we met was through Twitter. And I think mm. just the other night, I, I actually tweeted something out about this idea of on any given day, I'm having conversations with people across the world in numerous countries, in Africa, in Asia, in Europe, in South America, in Central America, in North America, like every day it's, I'm pretty much hitting every single spot in the world in some sort of conversation with people. And it just reminds you that even in this moment where we're locked down and we can't necessarily travel the physical world, you can still be building these relationships in the digital world. So when things do open back up, all of a sudden that world got a lot smaller because now when you travel somewhere, like if I come over to you, Craig, I'm, I'm putting out a tweet to say, Craig, let's go grab a pint. Let's have some fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I, it's just, for me, it's taken me like 32 years to realize this. I don't know if you've been, been the same, but it's, it's only this year really for me that I've actually started talking to people from all around the world and communicating with people and making connections. It's crazy that it's took me that long to do it. Yeah, this is the first time I've done it online. I've done it when I've traveled. I've always been able to make friends anytime I go somewhere. And then I stay in contact with them after the fact, but that's always a, I'm meeting them when I'm there. And this is a different situation where we're just meeting through Twitter or online in in some capacity and building those relationships here first. And then it will go to the real world. And it's kind of interesting for me. I remember growing up, I was of the age that Facebook had really just come out when I was entering into college. And so I remember the big moment in any sort of friendship was when that friend would actually accept you as a friend on Facebook. It was like this big moment of taking the real world to the digital world as validation of we're really friends. And now it's almost the exact opposite where you become friends online and on Twitter first, and then you validate it by meeting up in person and in the real world. It makes it so much easier as well. You start talking to somebody on Twitter or or on a Slack community or something, and then you get on a Zoom call and you already know each other. There's, there's none of that. Uh, you already know that you're going to like each other. You already know that you think the same kind of things. You you know, you already you already know that you're going to get on. You don't need to worry about any of that kind of stuff. It's it's awesome. I just wish I'd, I wish I'd learned it bloody 10 years ago. I agree with you, although I'm not sure 10 years ago we would have had the same amount of value that we're getting now because there's just been this movement towards using Twitter and using the online world. So maybe looking back, we think it would feel the same way, but it it may be entirely different if we would have been here 10 years ago. Yeah, no, no, maybe you're right. I, I can't, it's only this year, even even when I think other things as well, like everybody learning what Zoom is, everybody learning what video calls is, even though the technology has been around for years. And I run a digital agency and the technology has been there forever. And we've never really handled meetings across video or anything like that. We've never done any of this stuff before. And it's only this year where even we've started using this stuff. Only this year when my parents have started using this stuff that it's just, it's just another way of communicating. Now I've been on 
pub quizzes and and quizzes on Zoom and stuff like that, and meeting friends on Zoom, and I don't think it, I don't think it replaces the the in the in person meeting, because I I I still do think it can feel sometimes a little bit awkward to talk to people over video, but I remember I've got a lot better with it. Even six months ago, it felt a lot more awkward than it does now, and I I think we're evolving we're evolving pretty quick to get used to this whole video calling thing um it definitely feels different to a fir- an in-person conversation though yeah it's it's not a replacement it's a supplement mm. right it's it's still different to be in person and talk to them one-on-one see their body language see kind of hear their tone more clearly because you're not having to worry about the sound quality or echoes or what's going on around you necessarily so there's still an extreme value in the in-person, let's meet, let's talk, let's have a meeting, let's even just hang out. Like there's a different energy that comes from that situation than you get when you're online doing Zoom. But this is a supplement to these ideas where like me and you right now can have this conversation, whereas before it would have been just over the phone. Now we actually get to see each other and can read a little bit more of the body language and the tone and get, pick up on some cues that help us build a better relationship and a better connection when we're discussing things. Yeah. So body language and how people speak and things like that kind of leads into the main thing that I wanted to ask you about, which is what is performative speaking? Because you've started a course in performative speaking. What is it? Yeah. So it's my, I guess, entrance into the really this creative world. And it draws on my experience as a trial lawyer and my experience teaching persuasive speaking at the Southern Methodist University Law School here in Dallas. And what it is, is I quickly realized there is a lack of good teaching, especially online, of how to become a better public speaker. So when COVID hit, I started taking some of these online courses like Jack Butcher's course, like David Perel's Rite of Passage course, and was finding that people are interested in this idea of self-development and learning, but learning inside of a community, right? They don't want to just go and purchase a a product necessarily and watch it and think that it's magically going to fix them. So I said, there's got to be a way to, to pull this public speaking stuff into the online course stuff. And that's really what I did with performative speaking. And performative speaking is just this idea that we can bring about change with our words and that speaking is a form of performance art. And really what it's doing is drawing on real life experiences that each speaker has had in their life. So whether that's watching a movie, watching a TV show, some sort of pop culture moment, whether that's an experience they had traveling, eating something, looking at architecture, whatever it may be, and using that emotional moment that they've experienced themselves and recreating that for the audience so that they can feel a certain emotion so that they can get moved to take action in the way that the speaker wants. And so it's just a, it's a five week online course right now. And it will obviously grow over time to have more kind of branches. This is really the trunk as I like to to talk about it is this kind of the base where everything will flow out of. But right now, the first cohort is launching in nine days. There's 32 people who have already signed up to take this. And it's going to be just a community driven course with myself and my law partner actually now who also teaches at SMU with me. I've convinced him to basically suspend our 
law practice and taking on any new cases so that we can really invest the time and make sure all the students who are taking the course get the, the value and the benefit out of taking it with us. Wow, that's awesome. 32 people. Yeah. Yeah. That's, pretty pretty crazy stuff, right? That's huge. And 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 where are those 32 people from? Is it a mix all over the world? All over the world. Obviously a lot given the time are spread across kind of North America, but there are some who are coming in from Europe to do it as well. It's a mix. I mean, it's a mix of all sort of professions, all sorts of you know, backgrounds and experiences, a nice breakdown between the genders, a good, good mix of different races and viewpoints. Like it's just a, it's exactly what online learning is these days. It is a mix of people all coming together to support one another, help one another, and really build themselves into a better speaker or a better person, but also help the other people in the course do the same thing. So, so you spoke about persuasive speaking and when did you, and, and you're a trial lawyer as well. So when you're a trial lawyer, when you first became a trial lawyer, did you immediately realize or is, or is persuasive speaking taught to you as, as kind of a core tenant of, of what you're learning or did you later realize the power of persuasive speaking? So unfortunately, most people don't get taught persuasive speaking. When you're in law school, that's not one of the things they really teach. You have to take a like supplemental course. It's not one of the core courses that you have to take. I, knowing how important that was and how much I enjoyed speaking, and I also came from a competitive background where I played college baseball. To me, being a trial lawyer was the most competition-like feel that I could find in the legal community. So that's really what I gravitated towards, which meant I got involved with the national mock trial team at SMU law school. I was competing on that. I was taking the course to learn how to become a better persuasive speaker. And that's where it started for me. Then in the, my life as a trial lawyer, I ended up trying 102 jury trials, which is where I really started to hone and refine and build those skills to the level that they are today. Yeah. So I find that amazing that, and they're teaching people to be trial lawyers that persuasive speaking is not one of the core, core parts of what they teach. But I guess it's a little bit like uh, being a designer too. In fact, it's, it's, it's like lo- loads of careers. As a designer, the thing I do most of the time, I've got to convince clients, I've got to convince people that the things that I'm presenting to them, pretty much any profession is the same. I, when I meet a client... I've got to say that the things that I'm suggesting to you are the correct things from my point of view. And there's an element of convincing and persuasion that goes into that. And I I never really got taught that either. It's it, I, I, just, I just learned it over time or I've read certain books or it's, ju- it's just stuff that you pick up. So it's a really interesting subject about p- persuasive speaking. Even public speaking just core public speaking most people aren't taught public speaking either they just end up falling into it and then they just do it so for me most public speaking is persuasive speaking yeah you always have something you're trying to achieve when you're speaking we don't just say words for for the hell of it right we are always talking for some purpose whether it's i'm trying to convince somebody that my idea is right or i'm trying to convince them 
to purchase a product or whatever it may be, or you should watch the television show I like. We're always trying to convince people, which means anytime we're trying to convince somebody, we're trying to speak persuasively. And it is amazing to me that people aren't taught these skills. I mean, at, at most, maybe you take a speech class in high school, which is not really designed to help you become really a good public speaker. And so, I mean, I use the term public speaker, but that really just encompasses every day that you're speaking. Anytime you're talking to somebody, that is a form of public speaking. You don't need to be in front of a thousand people on a stage for it to be called public speaking, right? Like yeah. you should be able to walk into a boardroom and pitch your idea to a bunch of executives at your company and do it confidently and persuasively. You should also be able to go to a networking event and just be able to work the room and have conversations with people. And you should also be able at Thanksgiving or Christmas, Christmas dinner, be seated at the table with your friends and family, pouring a bottle of wine and be able to tell them stories that are entertaining and that sell them on this idea of you have an interesting life, you have a perspective, you have something to offer. And so all of these are really public speaking tools that people don't understand. And what ends up happening is they say silent or they fumble and mumble their words and it's just leaves no impact. And so you basically walk out either saying silent or just being completely forgetful. I, I find it, it is a fascinating subject to me, something I've studied in various ways for a really long time. Um, and one thing that I always remember is one of my old lecturers at university, he had no problem giving lectures, uh, lectures. And, and, and the, it wasn't a kind of a traditional university I went to. It was what in the UK we call a college. In, in the UK, we've got colleges and then universities. And I went to a college to do my university course. So the room, there was only about 20 people in the room. And he spoke very confidently and very eloquently and taught really well. And that's where I learned design. And when I, I, I used to rib him sometimes because I used to say, well, do, do you never want to give public speak, you know, public speeches to a, an audience of bigger than 20 people? He said, no, I'm terrified of that. And I always found it interesting that he was so confident in a room full of people that he knew. But if he was to go into a room and he was the same, at, I, saw, I saw him at some networking events as well. He never really had much confidence at those either. So he was only confident in one setting that he controlled, and because he was, he was the he he ran the course. He he knew how it all worked. It was his comfort zone. But when he stepped out of his comfort zone into any other place, even if it was just people that he didn't know, especially a room full of hundred people or something like that, he found it terrifying. And I find that really interesting because I used to have lots of conversations with him about it, about why do you feel so confident teaching it's essentially the same skills that you're taking from one place to another you're really eloquent and, and you're really good at presenting in a room with not many people but you find it terrifying and you don't know how you'd achieve the same thing in a room full of 100 people surely it's just the same thing right you know they're they're a little bit different feels because what you're talking about is he just felt really confident in his subject material and that he was the expert in that room because it's a bunch of students, right? So it's easy sometimes to feel confident when you are clearly the superior. Everybody walks in knowing you're the, the, the superior person in that room. So some people have that kind of built in where if they're in that position and it's automatic for them, it's a lot easier to have confidence. Whereas when they're in a room full of like a networking event, even if they were talking about the same subject matter, 
The issue is now they're not immediately looked at as the superior person in that room because the person they're talking to may feel like their peers, may feel, may feel like they're equals. And sometimes people struggle with that when they don't have that built-in kind of confidence boost of, I know every person in this room who's walking in is going to look up to me as I'm the expert. So that's probably where a lot of that comes from. And everyone is a little bit different. This is one of the interesting things you're bringing up right here is some people are much better in the situation you're talking about where they're very confident in their subject material. They're, they're teaching the course. They know what they're doing there. Other people are very nervous and anxious in that situation, but be very confident in the more informal, off the cuff talking in a networking event. And so each person has these kind of different ways that their mind works when it comes to public speaking. And it's hard to say any hard and fast rule for everybody across the board, which is why it makes it so interesting to me to try to really get into people's psyche and figure out what exactly is going on that makes them struggle in certain situations. Do you think some people are just naturally better at speaking in public than others? Absolutely. Do you think it's like a, a natural talent that some people have? Yeah. I mean, I think it's very similar to any any sort of sport or job or way that people think, right? There's there's people who are just naturally gifted basketball players or football players. And we can use football for, for your sake that it, I'm talking about your football and not my football. I prefer your there, football, so we'll talk about your football. <laughs> but there's people who are just naturally gifted in these sports, right? Like we, we see them when we're growing up and we go, oh, that person's going to be something there. It's the same with speaking. There are people who are just naturally better. Like the idea that everybody can be a great public speaker is just simply not true. The idea that everybody can be a better public speaker is true, right? And that's the difference. You may not be able to be the top 1%, but you can get into that top 10% if you put in the work and put in the time. And getting into that top 10% is going to make a huge difference for your life and for your career. And it's, you just have to be aware, like, let's not aim for that top 1% because that really takes a, a special, just innate gift and then a lot of work as well. So I think if we can start looking at it as you may not be a great public speaker, maybe you're never going to be paid $50,000 to deliver a speech, but you can certainly become a much better public speaker, which is going to open up doors in your career because all of a sudden you may not be on stage giving a huge public speech as a professional public speaker, but you could be in the very top 1% of your field. Let's say for digital designers, right? Maybe all of a sudden you, you get better at public speaking and maybe you're at the 92nd percentile for all public speakers, but because you're a designer as well and you're at 92%, you all of a sudden are at like the top 1% of 1% of all digital designers when it comes to speaking well, which means in your field, you're going to stand out as the expert and all of a sudden people are going to be looking up to you as this great public speaker. Yeah, I've seen it all the time, all the way through my career. When I first started as a designer, I used to go to a lot of conferences um, and things like that, that's specifically design conferences. And you always saw the same people there, always the same people giving the talks because they were good public speakers and, and they'd built this skill over time and they could eloquently talk about design and everything and then you went and looked at their website and you realize that actually there's nothing special about them that the design skills are not particularly amazing but because they could speak well and because they could go in front of an audience of hundreds of people and 
present an argument that was interesting and intriguing and something that you would listen to for 45 minutes, it puts them, like you said, in, you know, in the 99th percentile because, and then they were looked up to and they were seen as the experts in the design industry. And a lot of those people, even 10 years ago, even now, today, 10 years later, they're still seen as the experts in the field, particularly in British design. And I think you can track that back to most industries as well, can't you? Any industry you think of, the people who are well-known are the people who've got a podcast or the people who give regular talks at conferences. They're basically the people who are good at speaking in public in some fashion, aren't they? Yeah, it's just one of those, when you stack that ability to speak well on top of whatever their basic skill set is and you start stacking them together, that's really where people can separate themselves because so many people are good at their job, right? Or good at their skill set, but don't know how to articulate it, don't know how to speak about it, don't know how to translate it to an audience, which means really your value is just doing the work. You can't be a leader, you can't be a teacher, you can't explain the process, but when you can do the work and then also explain the process, all of a sudden your value becomes much greater when it comes down to explaining the process because there aren't many people who can do that. There's a lot of people that can do the work, but there's not many people that can explain it and translate it to people. Why do you think it's like that? Why do you think most people don't enjoy explaining it or they never explore their public speaking skills or their communication skills or things like that? And that's such a a huge can of worms. I'll say one thing I think is a big flaw that people run into is they think that just by doing good work, they'll stand out. They think that logic and reason and all that stuff will end up carrying the, the day. And that simply isn't true. Like just because you're a good can do the work doesn't mean anybody's going to let you move up if you can't explain the ideas, right? You were saying, for example, you have to go and sell your ideas to clients. If you do great work, but you can't sell the work to the client, you don't make any money because that work doesn't go anywhere. It's the same for for lawyers. There's this idea that there's a person called the rainmaker, and that's the person who really doesn't do any legal work, but they go out and just bring in clients who pay all the money just because they build those connections and know how to work with them. If you've ever watched the show Billions, they kind of have somebody like that role too. Um, the number two, and I, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he was played by the guy who played Daniel Hardman in Suits. And so anyways, there's always that person who just because they are very good at speaking in those social skills and handling people rise much faster than somebody who just does really good work. So I think there's this idea that if I just do good work, I'll get the promotions, I'll move up, I'll get better opportunities. And that simply isn't true. I think the other thing that people struggle with is in a lot of these fields that people are working in, speaking isn't necessarily seen as one of those things that's super important, especially if you're working in a technical field. You think, oh, I just need to make my technical skills really, really good. And that will be the thing that helps me. And so they almost look down on this idea of speaking because it's called a soft skill, right? And the the term soft skill, I think, pushes a lot of people off in today's day and age because they think, oh, that's not important. If it's a soft skill, no one cares about it. Except the soft skills are really what can take all those hard skills and make them so much more powerful because then you can articulate them and explain them to people. And I think if we look at it, it's one of those things that Steve Jobs was so good at. He was a very good speaker, a very good presenter, and was able to really take Apple to where it is today in large part because of the way that he would perform and speak at those big launch events anytime he was announcing some new product. And 
maybe he wasn't the most gifted at the technical aspect, but he was great when it came to the performance and just showing off to the world. Yeah, absolutely. I, I spoke about this a lot on on the That's a Job podcast that I used to do with Rich Baird. We spoke about the idea of, uh, particularly of designers, but designers is quite a technical career, and I think it fits to a lot of the people who have got technical careers now too, that you, you can't just be the person who makes the work and sticks it online and expects to become famous from it or expects to be get, to get better. That maybe used to work 10 years ago when there wasn't such a there wasn't everybody out there doing the same thing as you particularly most careers are saturated now particularly the designers a career is is saturated and a lot of other things are and there's usually no matter what career you've got there's already people out there online talking about it so if you all you do is make good work people don't find you and you've you've got to have another string to your bow it's got to be you've got to be doing something else you've got to be sharing interesting opinions or or just making something that's different that makes you stand out from the crowd and often that that is an ability to articulate your ideas and when you learn any any kind of persuasive speaking it doesn't just translate to the words does it It, it's the written skills too it's they're, they're one and the same and interesting point you raised about convincing clients we've all got to convince clients but there's the other step before it as well you don't even get the work if you can't even persuade them to give you the work in the first place so if you're not persuasive even before that if you're not an interesting person or anything people i was talking about this in the in the office the other day the amount of times that we've been asked for people to see our portfolio when we when we work with them for the first time it is close to zero. We've been going 10 years as a digital agency. People buy us because they like us. It's very rare that they actually buy us because they've seen a thing that we've done in the past. It does happen. Occasionally it does happen. They've seen some of the work we've done in the past and they've bought us on the strength of that. But even then, it's not just on the strength of a single piece of work they've seen because they, they see the single piece of work and they meet you for the first time and they're like, oh my God, Craig's dick. We're not working with Craig. It doesn't matter the quality of the work if if you are not a nice person. They don't work with you. I mean, not just that. If they meet you and you can't put together clear sentences and you can't explain ideas to them, they're not going to have any confidence in you as a person, as a designer. Even if your design work is great and you just can't actually talk to them at all, they're not going to believe you. They're not going to trust you. There's a level of confidence from a client that comes from meeting with somebody and feeling like, oh, they know what they're talking about. They can, they can explain these ideas. I can see inside their brain, right? Because clients always want to see behind the curtain. They want to know, how did you come up with this? How do you get this? And the only way to show them behind the curtain is we can't put them in our brains, which means we have to find a way to take the words outside of our brain and clearly articulate them to the client and help them understand exactly what the process is, exactly what it looks like. Here's the reasoning behind this. And then they can have the confidence to say, you know, I'm going to go with with Craig because he's able to explain exactly what I wanted to hear. Yeah, and even on just the car communication thing, I've got the perfect example from a couple of days ago. One of the, a really popular website that we look after got hacked in some way. So 
I discovered that this website had been hacked, that we look after that it was our responsibility and um, someone had managed to get inside the website and put some content on there that shouldn't be there. So as soon as I found this out, I got on the phone to the client, said, look, we've discovered this issue. We're looking into it. We've got no further details at the minute, but trust us, we're on it. We went away and, and researched the problem, figured out what the issue was, and then we came to the conclusion that the issue was with their email. So we couldn't find any problems with the website. The website had not been hacked. They'd got into the website by having the correct username and password, which is which is rare. And the person who um, who whose username and password it was, they didn't do this. So somebody had got hold of the username and password. So we went back to the client and said, look, the website's fine, but your email is a worry. Whoever's looking after your email we think their email's been hacked, which is a bigger deal than a website getting hacked because, you know, yourself, your email gets hacked. You've, it's usually the gateway to lots of other stuff. So we handled the communication very quickly, very regularly. Soon as we spotted the issue, we went to them and, and said, yeah, you know, this is this, uh, whether it's good news or bad news. Then it transferred over to the IT company. And the IT company aren't very good. Uh, and to this day now, this was about a week ago, they've still not got an answer from the IT company as about uh, as how they got into their email. So they're worried. Mm. They're worried right now. They've Basically, they've had very little communication from the IT company. And, and you, you know yourself, when there's no communication, it, you just lead to thinking the worst things, don't you? So the two two situations identical to each other, one of, one of them was handled with communication, regular communication, the other one isn't, and now it's been filled with negatives. Yeah, I mean, you you have to be able to communicate and just explain what's going on in the best way that you can. And a, a lot of people either won't communicate or can't communicate because they either can't just because they don't actually have those skill sets or they won't because they don't know how to deliver them in a way that achieves a purpose that leads to a better outcome for everybody. Yeah. So something, just going back to the the public speaking side of things, obviously you've, and when I'm saying public speaking here, I'm talking about presenting to a client or basically giving some kind of performance. I I guess over the, the many years that you've been doing this, you've kind of built up common things that you see people do, and I'd love to know them. So is is the kind of common mistakes that you see people make every time when they give some kind of speech uh, to a client or into a room full of people? What are the kind of things that you look for and you think that they're easy to fix? So the biggest one would be just the mindset that people take into a big performance or a big speech. And most of the time what they're thinking is, I need to make a good speech for myself when really the thinking should be, how do I achieve my goal for the audience? How do I make them feel a certain way? How do I actually connect with them? Because at the end of the day, the way I judge every speech, every performance is, did my audience do what I wanted them to do? Did they take the action I wanted them to take? Did they vote my way? Did they give me the work? Whatever that may be. If the answer is yes, they did what I wanted them to do, then it was a successful and good speech. If they didn't, then it was not a good speech. I did not reach them on the level that I needed to. 
And a lot of people will make this mistake of saying, well, I just gave a great speech. And my, yeah, my audience didn't really care for it, but I, I gave a great speech. We well, may have given a great speech, but not in that setting, which means it's not a great speech. Like I, I can't, you've got to be aware of the situation you're in and what your goal is to achieve. That's the first big one that people make a mistake of is they, they write the speech and write the performance for themselves and not for the audience that they're talking to. That's a huge one. The next one is people generally speak far too fast. And this is my biggest one that I hit on all the time is just talk slower. Because what happens is when we speak slower, it feels more polished, it feels more controlled for the audience. It also allows the speaker to self-edit as they're going because they're not out of control and trying to catch up. Their brain isn't trying to catch up with the words coming out of their mouth. It cuts down on the number of ums and uhs you're gonna say because what happens is if you're speaking too fast, you end up hitting this wall where you don't know what's coming next. So you have to break. And then people are so concerned with being in silence because they hate silence, which is another thing people need to embrace it because silence is incredibly powerful. But most people aren't. So what they do is to fill that space, that's when they start with the ums, uh, 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 as they're thinking in their brain, what's the next thing I need to say? And it's all because they were going far too fast. Then by staying at a controlled pace and speaking slower, the other big thing you're able to do is you're able to play with dynamics of your speed. So if you're just talking fast, when you start talking faster, it just sounds out of control to your audience. When you're speaking at a slow and controlled pace, when you speed up, you can demonstrate excitement to your audience. They feel it because all of a sudden you've sped up. Just think of music, right? Music does not stay at one, one pace the entire time. It's controlled and then it builds up and then it comes back down. The same idea should be when you're speaking. And so what happens is you can stay slow and controlled, then you can speed up to show excitement. And the other thing you can do is you can actually slow down further to demonstrate a really important point or to put emphasis on a word, on a sentence, on a phrase by slowing down further. And it gives your audience the ability to hear the difference in the pace and understand that there's that's being done for a reason, not just that you're out of control. And so that would be the biggest mistake I see is people speak far too fast and it leads to all these other issues that if we can just get people to slow down, they would see an incredible change in their ability to speak more clearly, more confidently, more persuasively. Yeah, the, the slowing down thing I first realized when I started podcasting. I'd, I'd never realized it before then because, you know, when you're talking to your friends or whatever, it, it doesn't really matter, particularly if you're talking to friends who understand your accent and, and they know where you're coming from, it doesn't matter. But then when I started podcasting, I started to realize that, you know, actually it isn't the easiest thing to understand when you aren't from the area where I'm from. And if I were to talk normal like where from, I sound more like this and I talk much faster and it's much harder to understand and I've got a bit more of an accent going on, it's hard to follow what I'm saying. But as soon as you start talking a little bit slower, you can, I always, I find it easier to enunciate things as well when you're talking slower. And you, you just, I, now, especially since this year, now I talk to people from all around the world, it's made me realise the importance of enunciating things and knocking your accent back just a little bit more so people can understand what you're saying. Um, but when I did start talking slower, it feels really weird at first when you start talking much slower. 
It does. And what I tell people is if it feels like you're speaking too slowly, you're doing it right. Because it should feel a little bit slow. And what you'll find is when you actually watch it back, like let's say you're, you're being recorded on something, you'll listen to and you'll say, oh, that, that actually sounds really comfortable pacing. Like it doesn't sound super slow. It's really, really hard to speak so slowly that it is actually something you pick up on and are like, man, that was way too slow. I'm very aware of the pacing that I'm speaking at. So there are times where I really do try to go incredibly slow to draw on a point. And it is very, very difficult. And I've been doing this for years and practicing it in thousands of circumstances and settings. It is almost impossible for the, the average speaker to speak too slowly. And if it feels too slow, I guarantee you it's not. What do you think to preparation? So when, when I'm saying preparation, what I mean is, do you think it's a good idea to have a full script and learn the script word by word or do you think it's better to learn points that you want to cover and fill in the edges with natural language so this is going to be a person by person basis some people are great at memorizing a speech and still making it feel very organic and like more of a conversation that's never been my personal style i don't like that as a, as a style for myself but that doesn't mean other people don't benefit from doing that my style has always been to kind of outline and have what I kind of like to call our like random buckets kind of around my, like, let's say I have a body of an idea of what I want to do. And then I just have these buckets kind of around it. And what happens is as I'm reading my audience, I'm pulling different buckets in and rearranging them as I go to make it the most effective speech that it possibly can be. Because sometimes maybe I thought it was going to go in straight chronological order, bucket one, two, three, four, five, six, right? And all of a sudden I get into the setting and I'm reading my audience and I see how they react to my opening statement, like the very first line and kind of that hook. And I, I see, oh, bucket one is not going to be the right choice right now. I need to immediately jump to bucket four and just start going right into that. And then I start talking on that and I'm seeing the audience engage with it and enjoy what's going on. So then I'm going to go into bucket five instead. And maybe then I come back to some of those early ones. Sometimes I just remove them entirely because really what I think it takes when you get to a certain level is you're reading your audience and being able to kind of dance with them. That's one of the things I realized when I first started doing public speaking that I, I tried the full script thing because I, I think when you're quite a novice at this kind of thing, you think that's the right thing to do, don't you? You think the, the right thing to do is write out pages and pages of what you want to say and then try and learn it. And And I found that it made me quite nervous to do that kind of thing. Uh, and it didn't give me any flexibility either. And I've always been um, a- able to just talk forever anyway about anything. So I, d- I didn't really need to script things. The, the biggest thing I found that I really struggled with was I could learn the script, but then I couldn't make it sound natural because I'm not really an actor. And I, I, I feel like you need some kind of natural acting skills to be able to to do that then, to be able to have the full phrase that you're going to say, but still make it feel natural. And I could never really manage that. So the kind of the, the, the format that I ended up settling on is winging it. I, I always say it's winging it, but it, it kind of is winging it. I I... Most of the things that 
that I do when I am giving a, a formal public speech is I would have slides. So the slides would serve as my points to remember. And then I use the slides as kind of the hits, uh, the buckets as you described it, and then just go through go through the slides. And as you mentioned about reading the room, I think that's a really important thing that when you first start speaking, I, st- I still remember the first public speech I gave. It was the end of the design course that I did and there was only about 15 people in there and I was at the end of the course and I was terrified of doing this talk. This was 45 minutes I had to talk for and I'd never done a talk that long in my life and I had all the slides ready and everything. I was terrified of it and I said, after this, I'm never ever going to do this again. I never want to do this again in any setting. I hated it and for that, I prepared really carefully uh, and I, I wrote everything down and I had too many notes and it, it felt like I'd missed some of the things that I wanted to say. And from then on, I decided that doing that kind of presentation wasn't for me, but I still remember the feeling that I had. And I think you've probably seen a lot of people like this as well, where I was so afraid of speaking to the audience that I didn't read the room that I spoke too quickly, that I didn't understand any any of the things that I was presenting to the audience and I didn't even understand the words that I was saying to them. I just, I was blurting them out to get to the end of it as quickly as possible because I didn't want to be there. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. It's, reading the room is one of those things, It that is a skill that you develop over time. Like first you have to figure out how do I just develop and create impactful speeches generally, right? Then you start to, figure out how to read the room once you're comfortable in that setting. So it's, it's hard. I would never tell a beginner to immediately just start reading the room. That's then you're focusing on too many things all at once, but sorry, my, my dog is. Oh, he's, he's awesome. He's awesome. <laughs> well, anyways, uh, so you're, you're, you're not going to be able to read the room when you're starting out, it's just too challenging to think of what do I need to say and read the room. As you get better, that's really where you start to see people elevate themselves because then what happens is like, if I'm giving a speech to a room, I'm reading them. Is what I'm saying working? Great, I'm gonna dig in. If let's say I see they're kind of dozing off or falling asleep or not paying attention, well then I'm gonna do something to wake them up. I'm gonna go into something that's gonna shock them. I'm gonna change my volume. I'm gonna change my pacing. I'm gonna get really close to them. I'm gonna do things that make them engage with me to get them back into the speech. That's hard if you don't have that kind of foundational understanding of how to deliver a speech. So I think when you're starting out, like you were saying, having a script may be a benefit just to practice. And then you can deliver it as naturally as possible and just realize there may be some, some things that are going to change in the moment. And the, the other thing I want to point out is, Nobody in that room is going to know what your speech is supposed to be. There are very few instances where you, unless you're like the president of the United States and you're giving a speech ahead of time where you're saying, here is like, here's the written draft and this is what I'm going to deliver. Nobody who's listening to you knows what you were going to say, which means if you forget something, the audience doesn't know you forgot it. If you mess up something, the audience doesn't know you messed it up. Like once you start to realize they don't know what I know. So whatever I say, they think is exactly what I meant to say. And that's one of the biggest things you can learn is 
always act as if everything went exactly according to plan. Never show any sort of like flustered or frustration. A lot of people will say, oh, sorry, I messed up there. Or they'll change their words and we'll strike that. And it, I just cringe every time I hear that because the audience has no idea. Like you just told them you screwed up instead of just moving forward as if it was per- perfectly planned. Oh, that's the wrong slide. Sorry. That kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Just who cares? It's the wrong slide. Just go with it. Yeah. Like they don't know. I'll just skip over it. Just skip straight past it and just carry on. Right. It, exactly what I what I thought was going to happen. This is all part of my plan. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so how do how do you think you you get past that stage where you're a little bit nervous and this is particularly interesting for your course with with it being an online course. How do you get people to the point where they're confident in giving speeches to people? and confident in performative speaking and confident to read a room when they might not be able to do it in person. Yeah, it's this is all where it comes down to practice and feedback. And that's actually one of the reasons I do like the online format for this because what's going to happen in my course is there's going to be each week, people are going to be paired up into a small group and there are going to be exercises for every live live session where they're going to these rooms and delivering a a pitch based on a prompt that I'll give them ahead of time. And then what's going to happen is everybody else in that room is going to be listening and practicing their active listening skills. And at the end of that pitch, those people are then going to ask questions, which means now they're working on their questioning skills. And then the, the person who just delivered the pitch is going to have to listen to those questions and then give answers to the questions. And then they'll get feedback at the end of it. Will you do that enough times? So during the week, they'll be with the same group. And then the next week, they'll change groups and so on and so forth, so that they get different perspectives and different viewpoints. But at the same time, they're working long enough with people to really get kind of into who that person is as a speaker. The practice element is what is gonna make all of that kind kind of magic happen. Because that's what it, it takes to be a good public speaker is just to get really comfortable in those settings and be exposed to different ideas and different viewpoints and just practice and get feedback. This is really what I do when I teach this stuff at the SMU Law School is just have my students practice a ton and get feedback from me and get feedback from the other students so that they're able to develop these skills. And what happens is over a period of a month, two months, we'll start getting text messages from our students saying, hey, this has been a huge change. Like I'm seeing that I'm now more confident. I'm not anxious when I'm getting up because I'm getting really used to delivering these kinds of speeches in front of people. And I believe the same impact is going to happen here in the course. And so what I have designed is each week, there's three live sessions. They'll be delivering anywhere from one to two of these kinds of small group sessions each, each class. So by the end of each week, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of like four to six that they've done. Over time, right, they'll keep building those skills and they will build on, on each other throughout the process. And the second to last class is going to be live speeches in front of the entire course. So all of a sudden you go from this small group setting where you're getting more comfortable, getting more practice to now all of a sudden it's in front of everybody. So we're getting to kind of build those foundational skills before we get to that big, big performance moment. And I think that's where you're gonna see a lot of this, again, magic kind of happen where all of that foundational building finally pays off in that second to last class when they deliver this big speech in front of everybody. And they'll have the, the skills at that point 
to start reading the room, to start being more confident, to start understanding why this isn't a scary thing. And instead it should be seen as an exciting uh, opportunity. Yeah, that's that sounds perfect. That's exactly the same kind of experience I had that I, I went from delivering the last ever speech that I ever wanted to del- deliver at 18 to realizing that, oh, damn, I'm going to be a designer. I'm going to have to do this pretty regularly. And it was it was only over time that I started to, so I, I kind of had two levels going on at the same time. At first, when I was delivering speeches to clients and into board boardrooms and things like that, my fear level was right up at the top at 100% and I could barely control what I was saying. And then over time, the fear level starts to drop and then it's a really weird feeling. You suddenly start to feel more conscious in the room and then even more over time, suddenly the fear level's at zero and you're 100% present in the room at the same time. And for me, it just took being scared over and over in that situation before I got to the point where I don't, I I want to say I don't care. And it is right. I, I don't care about being in front of the room because I felt for me personally that one of the biggest uh, setbacks or one of the biggest holdups for me was feeling like I was going to be an idiot, that I was going to say something stupid or I was going to mess something up. So I just had to just keep doing it until the fear level dropped to zero and then I could be fully present in the room. Yeah, it's interesting because I say this, as I got better at public speaking and did more of these, it really started to be a situation where time slowed down for me. And I don't don't think people fully, for most people, it feels like time speeds up when they're in those situations. But for me, it felt like it slowed down. And as I got really good, what almost happened is, you're saying like you're fully conscious there, I almost am able to remove myself and almost am watching myself do the performance in the room, which is a really weird feeling. It's hard to describe until you get to that level of comfort and confidence where it just becomes like, this is, this is what I do. Like the lights are on and all of a sudden time slows down. I feel like I'm watching myself do all of this. And it's a really interesting transformation you go through. And one of the big things I try to help people understand is when most people feel that energy, they call it nervous energy. And I like to tell people, it's just energy. You're giving the name nervous. Instead, look at it as excited. It's an opportunity. And that change in the mindset can really help people start to ramp that fear down very quickly so that they can overcome it. Because the example I like to give is a player at the end of a basketball game going to take the game-winning shot. Some players want the ball in that moment and love it. Some players don't want the ball in that moment because they hate it. It's the same moment, right? So it's just how the the person is looking at it. Some look at it as this is my opportunity to succeed and for the reward. Other people look at it as this is my opportunity to fail and see the risk. And that's the same with speaking. It's the same with the energy. It's the same moment for two people. One is identifying it as an exciting opportunity. One is identifying it as a nervous opportunity if we can get everybody thinking it's not nervous, it's exciting, all of a sudden they have a different mindset and start to set themselves up to succeed instead of fail. Yeah, I, I, com- I completely agree with you. Getting, getting to the point where you know you are going to be a little bit nervous and understanding the feelings and know that it's excitement or whatever way you want to frame it, knowing that those feelings actually elevate your brain and your cognitive function and knowing that 
that's the thing that makes it feel like time's slowing down, isn't it? That you you work you're firing much faster than you normally would, and you're a little bit excited by the whole situation, uh, and and that's there's a lot of parallels between jiu-jitsu as well that I do that when I first started jiu-jitsu Brazilian jiu-jitsu I was in the moment completely in the moment but terrified of being choked out or terrified of getting my arm broken or or whatever and you're totally just surviving you're just in survival mode and it's this it's the exact same with public speaking you're just mm-hmm. in there you don't know what you're doing you are doing everything to not die basically that's why how your brain sees it and then over time it's it switches you start to realize that i am not going to die and i can actually thrive in this situation and not only can i not die i can actually produce something that's really interesting in jiu-jitsu or public speaking but it takes time to get past that and you've got to go through a lot of uncomfortable situations before you get to the point where it feels natural haven't you yeah you do and I like to say, that, I mean, this is one of the big reasons why I designed the course and I'm doing this and also coaching clients is because I can speed up that process for these people. I, because it's not just going to be a trial and error for people where it could take months or years. It's I've like, I, I don't want them to suffer needlessly. If we can do this in a couple weeks, like let's, let's do that. Let's go all in and let's give the guidance that's needed so that you're not feeling that that terror, the, Oh, I'm going to die. Let's start getting you immediately to the, Hey, this is awesome. I love to speak. I get this opportunity and I can really increase my chances of career success, life success, all these sort of things in a much simpler and, and shorter time frame. So do you think you could, so how long is your course? 10 weeks? Did you say? Of course it's, five, it's five weeks and it's three times a week plus some other kind of smaller sessions scattered throughout the week that people can attend if they want to. It probably took me five or six years to get to that point. Yeah. It, it takes time. Like it's, it's the same with any, any sort of program or coach. Like if you're doing jujitsu, you could learn it by yourself, but you're not going to improve at the same rate as if you actually have a coach. It's the same thing as any professional athlete has a strength and conditioning coach, they have, I was a baseball player, so I'll use baseball. There's a, a hitting coach. There's a pitching coach. There's a fielding coach. There's your bench coach. There's your, your head coach. Then there's your mental training coach, your psychology coach, your like actual um, therapist, like physical therapist. You have all these different coaches for different things, even though this is a professional baseball player. Like they're at the highest level and they're still using coaches to help them because it speeds up the process. And so that's kind of what, I'm hoping my role can be for, for people is to say, Hey, I don't need to spend five or six years getting better at this. I can condense that into five weeks, three months, whatever it may be working with me so that you can actually see those results a lot quicker and not be in this kind of fight or flight moment for so long. Yeah. I I believe you completely. I reckon if I would, if your course would have been around five or six years ago, it it would have cut five years out of my time and it would have been much easier. Um, But the way I look at anything like that, because I can think pretty much everything I've learned in my life, I've learned the hard way. And the way I always look at it is that there's value in learning things the hard way as well, that you learn to be more resilient and you can, it means that anything you can, you just throw yourself at you can 
eventually, even though it takes five or six years, eventually you can get there and learn how things work. You are right. But I will say most people, I don't think, have the determination that that you necessarily have to continue putting in the hard work. Most people maybe would give it a year and say, it's not worth it anymore. I'm not getting the results I want to. So you are right. If you're willing to put in that hard work and do it for a long period of time, you can achieve anything. But a lot of people, and we know this, Craig, aren't willing to put in the hard work to get there. Yeah. So one last thing I want to ask you, something I meant to ask earlier is about writing. So mm-hmm. I, I've always, particularly since I started doing the podcasting a couple of years ago, and around the time I started writing as well, I started to realize that there was quite a, a, a strong connection between writing and speaking. And if I improve one of the skills, the other one got better. And if I spent more time doing the other one, the other one got better. I just wondered your opinion on that. And and do you kind of have any kind of writing tasks in performative speaking as well? Or do you advise people to write as well? I completely agree that writing and speaking go hand in hand. I think they all kind of play off one another. I think in order to, I think really the, the holy trinity when we're talking about this stuff is thinking well, speaking well, and writing well, in whatever order you want to be. I think they kind of all are this circle where, if you improve one, it can improve the other, which improves the other, and it just kind of continues on. And you get better and better and better at each of them over time. In terms of writing, yeah, I mean, there will be some writing pieces involved just because people will need to kind of write out ideas. There won't be a, this isn't a speech writing course. I mean, I certainly do some of that on my own for people, but that is not necessarily what it's designed for. However, there will be elements of that that are being taught. There will be demonstrations being given. And fortunately for me, a lot of the people in this course are already in that writing world because it's a very natural, most people who are interested in speaking well also understand the value in writing well. So I myself write regularly. I have a newsletter I write every week. I have articles I write typically every other week and in, in putting out, I'm obviously very proficient on, or uh, yeah, on Twitter and putting out just tons of information there. Prolific. Not proficient. Prolific was the word I was looking for. You see, I caught it. Proficient and, and prolific. And I think people are going to see that there is a value in writing out a lot of their ideas before they're delivering speeches. Because one of the things, too, in the course that's being done is it's not just the practical element inside the course. The design of the course is also for each person to create a video of themselves that they will post to YouTube every single week. So there'll, there'll be five of those. And my guess is that most people when they're working on those will end up writing out generally what they want to say before they deliver it. So they have some sort of idea. So throughout the course, there will be a writing piece probably tied into it. It won't be explicit, but I think most people will do it anyways. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting, interesting topic. I'm not really much of a, I've tried to write regularly for a really long time. Uh, I've got an email newsletter, but it's mostly a visual and I don't, I do it sporadically and I've got a blog, but I don't do it very regularly. I've always struggled with writing, even though I enjoy writing and I've written a couple of short books, but I I did find that it it wasn't, it wasn't so much the speech writing because when, when I, when I when I am writing some kind of talk, I'm a bit weird. I I, I do the slides first, and then I, I do the slides, and then I talk the to- I talk the talk. So I talk the speech to myself, and then mm. that's how I work out the script. 
so I don't usually write much of it down, but I did find that with the writing specifically, it helped me build the arguments. So obviously for trial lawyers and things, that's that's pretty useful, but I, I found it writing, there's something special about the medium that it makes it much easier to work out the kind of course of the thing that you're going to say. So no matter, no matter what point you're trying to make, it helps you develop the initial thing that you're going to say and then all the points you're going to raise in the middle. And I haven't found a better way to work that out. It, it feels slower and more methodical when you do it that way. Yeah, I mean, I, there's definitely a value in writing writing these ideas out and just challenging yourself to work through them because we write on paper and then we read through it. A lot of times we realize it's not as clear as we want it to be. And so then we have to go back and refine and make sure that it is clear so that we can then deliver it in a really impactful way. Yeah, and then sometimes you write something and you only realize it's daft when you read it out loud. So they, they, yeah. they all link off each other. Anyway, they really we, do. we've been going for an hour, so I think it's probably I could talk to you for hours about this stuff because I do find it fascinating. Um, but is there any final things you want to say? Do you want to link off to performative speaking and all that kind of stuff? The the easiest way to to find anything performative speaking is just go to my Twitter, which is at Robbie Crab. It has a link to the performative speaking page. It has a link to my personal website as well. You can always DM me, reach out directly to me, and I'm happy to talk more on this, whether it's you just want some advice, you want to get involved in performative speaking, you want coaching, you just want to talk about my life as a trial lawyer or baseball player or any of those sort of things. I'm always happy to talk. I mean, like we started the the podcast, Craig, it's it's a unique time right now where you can build real connections with people on Twitter. And so I'm always down for, for just building real connections with good people. Yeah, I can vouch for that too. We just hit up in DMs and we started chatting. And I really recommend anybody does that. I spoke to Sean Connors, who was now working with you. That's the way I met Sean. It's a really powerful time to be doing that kind of stuff. Yeah, it really is. And Sean's great. The the there's a team involved in performance speaking. Sean, Sean Connors, Kyle Bow, and my law partner Tyler Eden. And it's just exciting to see what's coming about. Yeah. So we'll leave it there. Cheers, Robbie, and let's chat again soon. Cheers, Craig. Appreciate it, man.